This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur. In A Spying Eye, the sixth novel of Henrietta Inspector Howard's series by Michelle Cox, newlyweds Henrietta and Clive return to Europe in an attempt to resurrect their failed honeymoon. While in London, they're approached by their old friend, Inspector John Hartle, who convinces them to search for a missing panel of the Ghent altarpiece, a famous Renaissance painting of which Hitler's top men are also in pursuit. Clive and Henrietta's search takes them to the Chateau de Freudenich in Strasbourg, France, an ancient seat of the von Harmons and home to three eccentric distant relatives. What begins as a wild goose chase turns decidedly more deadly when several Nazi officers also arrive at the chateau in search of the valuable item. When Henrietta and Clive attempt to flee after Henrietta uncovers a shocking truth, they are forced to trust themselves to a suspicious French servant who seems all too willing to help. Michelle and I discuss her research for the art coveted by Hitler, how and why three of the female characters in her series give such a great picture of women's lives in the 1930s, and the story she's itching to write next. The first question I have for you is, for listeners who haven't yet delved into the Henrietta and Inspector Howard series, of which there are now six novels, explain how the concept for the series came to you. Well, I didn't really think of it as a series when I was writing book one. So book one is A Girl Like You, and it was just supposed to be a one-off. But then halfway through, I just really fell in love with those characters, and I just didn't want to leave them behind. So I thought, I'll make this into a series. So that's why it sort of grew into a series. But if I had known it was going to be a series to begin with, I probably would have set it up a little bit differently. So I kind of, book two, I kind of had to shift things and um, kind of spin it a little bit differently to, to kind of, you know, I needed more drama and I needed more characters in order to make this into a series. But um, just in answer to the, your other question about the inspiration, the inspiring character was actually a woman that I met in a nursing home. So she's actually based, Henrietta is based on her. She had this amazing life in the 30s and 40s, this woman, and she told me all about her life. And so a lot of what happened in book one actually happened to this woman. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because um, I love hearing how authors get their inspiration. And just having this person who by hook or by crook comes into your life and can spin such a wonderful tale about herself in, I assume, 20s and 30s, 1920s, 1930s. Yeah, 30s, 40s. Right. And I'm just like, I'm blown away by that because I don't think that we listen to our elders enough. <laughs> I know. It's true. It's true. Well, I, I always tell writing groups, you know, like if you're stuck for an idea, go sit in a nursing home for a couple of weeks because you'll come out of it with more stories than you could ever, ever, ever use. So, yeah, wow. I mean, there's just, and that's part of the blog that I write, Novel Notes of Local Lore. It's, I take a different nursing home story every week and tell just, these are just ordinary people living in the 30s and 40s in Chicago, and they had such amazing lives. I mean, they really went through so much, and they're just normal, everyday people, and yet they had so much history to share. So those are all pretty much verbatim true stories in the blog. 
Wow. That I love yeah, to hear. Yeah. I love to hear that. Yeah. Cool. In the latest novel of the series, A Spying Eye, Henrietta and her, I consider him a wonderfully <laughs> adoring husband. <laughs> yeah. And he's her perfect detecting partner because he'll do all the hard work, you know, all the all the wet work, as they say. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, his name is Clive mm -hmm. Howard, and they are tasked with finding a mysterious painting, also being sought by the Germans because their chancellor Adolf Hitler views its mystical powers as an integral part of who he wants to be when he tries to essentially take over the world. Right. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, you have wonderful end notes on this very real artifact, uh, the Ghent altar piece. How did you come across it and why did it sing to you as, ooh, this could really work with Henrietta and Clive? It's a good question. It's, I don't have a super, you know, super great answer. I knew I wanted them to go back to Europe, basically with Selfish. I really just wanted to write a story about them back in Europe. So I had to come up with sort of an idea. I'd already done The Murdered Man in the English Village. That was in book three. So I thought, okay, what about art? What about stolen art? I could do something with that maybe. So I just looked up stolen art, 1940s Europe, and the Ghent altarpiece popped up. So I started researching it and I'm like, oh my God, this is perfect because it was a real life theft. It's an unsolved mystery to this day, and it did have all of these sort of quasi, well, what Hitler thought were mystical powers, and there was so much drama there already. I thought, okay, I can use this. Yeah, totally. I could envision the piece in my brain, like I kind of could see it, and knowing that it was a Renaissance piece was even more clear, because obviously every era has their own mm -hmm. style, and the fact that, from what I understood, it was Dutch. It was actually Belgian. Oh, yeah. okay. Because in my mind, I seen a lot of the, yeah. the Dutch masters, similar. obviously. So I was like, yeah, very similar. But, you know, everybody had their different style. But um, it really came clear in my mind's eye. Thank you. These novels aren't just Henrietta's story, but also you combine other plot threads that involve two other women, her sister, Elsie von Harmon, who in this book, and I know it's a carryover from the last book, she's fallen in love with the custodian in her school, who's a German immigrant. His name is Gunther, and he cares for a young epileptic orphan. And then you also have a third plot about Henrietta's sister-in-law, Julia, who is in an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. How did these stories grow inside of you, and why did you feel they were right to keep letting readers know? Because I felt they were an interesting juxtaposition of when you look at contemporary and you look at historical, how immigrants were treated back then compared to how immigrants are treated mm -hmm. now, and also the whole male patriarchy system of which Julia is definitely inculcated with someone who who thinks he owns her, essentially, Randolph, her husband. Yeah. Um, you know, again, I think that this is sort of developed these plot lines as the series went along, because book one really doesn't have a subplot. You have the character, Dan, who's a neighborhood boy who um, follows her around and he gets mixed up in the plot. And 
Elsie is sort of secretly in love with him, but he's in love with Henrietta. So we initially have that sort of love triangle. And then when I, as I said, when I started to shift it into a bigger series, I realized that I needed more characters, as I said, in a more plot line. And so Elsie's story and her sort of chase after Stan sort of started to develop until really book four is when Elsie's story really takes off and she gets about as much playtime in the novels as Henrietta does. And readers have commented about that and have some have said they actually prefer the Elsie (laughs) storyline. So it started out as a way to just sort of expand the novels. But then I saw it as a way to form an interesting sort of contrast between Henrietta's life, which isn't perfect, even though she's rich now and she has this mansion and all this kind of stuff. it, It still comes with a lot of price tag. So she's living this Downton Abbey life, but I needed the sort of, you know, the underside of Downton Abbey, which would be what happens to the rest of the characters who are left in poverty in the city. And that's kind of where Elsie's storyline goes, because she has the chance to be Henrietta Jr. And she doesn't. She doesn't want that life. She's a different sort of person. And so I thought that having these subplots like you said, talking about Julia and her abusive husband and mental illness and immigrants and how that was treated, it was kind of a way to sort of root the series. So instead of it being this sort of fairy tale, like Nancy Drewish mystery, we're off to solve it, I wanted it to have some more serious undertones and more drama, to be honest, because there's only so much drama that the mystery can produce. And so I thought, well, just in case... <laughs> I'll create these other plot lines. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, Sometimes I think people have a favorite series because they don't always just fall in love with whatever the mystery is, but they fall in love with who the characters are and how the characters show themselves in different little ways that aren't part of the mystery. Right. And I can see where Henrietta's both head and heart, and Elsie is definitely heart. Julia on the other hand, strikes me as more head than mm-hmm. heart. And unfortunately, I'm sure that's why she ended up with Randolph. And now in this book, you give her an opportunity to break away. Mm-hmm. And in a real interesting way, I think, too. And frankly, that was the storyline that I really wanted to see develop. Interesting. Yeah, it's one that I have kind of fallen in love with, too, because I've been doing the Elsie storyline now for a while. And um, the Julia one is one that I just um, exploded in this book. And then she carries over into book seven, which I'm writing right now. And I think it's interesting, just if you want to talk about those two characters, you know, they both have this societal expectation. and Julia followed through and did what her mother and society wanted her to do. And then this is what happened. Elsie, however, isn't going along with that, with what society wants her to do. But again, both of them had to pay a very large price for their decisions. And I think that that's realistic. I think that um, women in that era had very little choices, whether you were rich or poor or whatever. Yeah, and um, 
I mean, I was just like heartbroken that her mother kind of put her in that position, but doesn't want to hear about mm -hmm. it. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> that's not fair. No. And I'm, you know, I'm glad that you've opened her world a little bit and said, maybe this is something else. Because like you just pointed out, you've got, you know, three different women on three different tracks all around the same age. And they have made choices based on different reasons and based on, you know, head and heart, you know, one following their head, one following their heart, one following both. And it just kind of like, to me, I'm like, in that time and place, it's hard to make that kind of decision. When we're talking about the 30s, it's not like women of today. You don't have that many choices, especially when it comes to a profession, shall we say, or, you know, earning income, I think is a little bit more, obviously, a lot more uh, evened out, right. but not back then. And I think people need to know that when they're looking historically, you know, they're looking back, even if it's only 100 years, which now it's almost at 100 mm -hmm. years. So, you know, you're looking at, you know, 85, 90 years right now to where you're yeah. at in the novels. Yeah. And I feel like I should just note, too, that in book five, A Child Lost, there is another storyline which was more prominent. The, the Julia one wasn't in that one so much. And this is a story of another woman who gets entangled with Stan, and she is a victim of an incestuous relationship with her father, and she's really, really poor. And she is caught up in this relationship with Stan. It's very clear that she doesn't love him, but this is a way out for her. So that's another whole, um, another woman's storyline at the opposite end of the spectrum. So I don't know why. I guess I must be obsessed with, <laughs> with this exploring different options for women. But I do think that part of this, because, you know, part of getting historical fiction right is getting that sort of mindset right, but making it accessible to the, the modern reader, which is tricky to do. But I do look back to the inspiration, uh, the woman that I met in the nursing home, she was a very beautiful woman. And even though it was the Great Depression, she didn't have a, a problem getting a job. She had a problem keeping a job because she was very virtuous. And if the owner inevitably tried to feel her up or trap her in the back room, she would slap him and then she would be out. And I think that took incredible courage to do in the middle of the Great Depression, living in a huge metropolis where, you know, there weren't many jobs. So if she could do it, then I think my characters can do it. <laughs> oh, I agree. The whole Von Harmon <laughs> mystery where she has these relatives that live in France and they live in a mansion, excuse me, a castle. Yeah. <laughs> and they have a deep, dark, dirty secret. And you have three people in a castle, one who's going mad. the other two tenuously are cold and non-caring, and yet they're all kind of trapped in this situation, but they're also Nazi sympathizers. So you've given the reader, you know, sort of a, is this the person we need to be wary about, or is this the person we need to be wary about? And I felt like you kind of brought the dread of being in a situation where it could have gone very, very badly just because of the whole Nazi regime. I mean, you're, if you're in a house that's partying with the Nazis, 
and you know there's something that they want and there's something you need to get <laughs> to keep it from them. That, to me, really set the pace for the whole book. Right. Yeah. How much research did you do in regard to Nazi hierarchy? Because I know that there are different, obviously, you know, there was the SS and then there was the Gestapo and there were other factions. And, of course, Hitler knew would pit one against the other. And he had he had uniforms for every occasion <laughs> for all of them. Right. Yes. <laughs> I'm just wondering if you did a deep dive when you decided, okay, this is how this was going to play out and who was going to be after the artifact. You know, the research that I did was mostly on Hitler's obsession with art and his particular obsession with this piece and the history of it. I think I did mention in, in the acknowledgments or the author's note that a whole novel could be written just about that. There's just so much. If you want to talk about the rabbit hole, that was definitely one because this is fascinating. And then it gets into the occult and all this kind of stuff. And I did a lot of research about Himmler, who wanted this particular piece and his role in the regime and his relationship to Hitler. And because I thought that that was very significant and how he was sending out teams really to the North Pole and South America searching for things like the Ark of the Lost Covenant and the painting and all this kind of stuff. So that was the the gist of my research. I think I did look up like a page of Nazi uniforms so that I could kind of get that detail right. But other than that, I just sort of winged it because I never want to be that writer where I'm trying to bring reams of research into the novel. So I find that it's better for me to just write the story and anything that I know that I need to go back and look for, I'll just write XXX because that keeps me writing. Otherwise, you know, I'm spending too much time researching and then I'm trying to find ways to bring in this, you know, meaningless information that the reader doesn't really need to know. So I find it works better to go the other way around. I think you're absolutely right, especially those of us that do write historical we do go into rabbit holes because it is so fascinating to us. It's why we're writing historical to begin with. Right. And then. Yes, because we love the history. Yeah. And you want to share that, but you just can't because it's just not really part of the novel. And the pacing just gets way thrown off. Right, right. This novel in this series leaves Elsie and Julia's plot threads kind of open. Yeah. I got the feeling that the same could be said about Henrietta's plot thread as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wanted you to confirm that. Yes, it's open-ended. <laughs> well, I'm writing book seven right now. I am actually finished it, but I'm in heavy, heavy edits. Because this, I hate to say this to any fans that are listening, but se book seven will be the end of the series. Oh, so, <gasps> Whoa. Yeah, so Whoa. I have to wrap everybody's storyline up and have a mystery. So it's really daunting. It's just, <laughs> this is the hardest book that I have written yet. And I've written two other books outside of the series. So book seven is tough. Yeah, yeah. It seems like seven is that lucky number sometimes for series. Yeah. Are you planning another series after this? Well, that's such a great question. Um, 
Yeah, I'm I'm trying to sort of figure out which direction to go in. I feel like I have maybe a lot of series in me. So I'm either going to take one of the characters and I'll just share. It's probably going to be Melody, Mary Mother. I'm going to probably spin her off into a series of her own, maybe a cozy mystery series. Or another idea I had was to advance the series by 10 years and then start it back up again. So now it's the 40s instead of the 30s and we kind of go from there. I have another idea for a series that's just completely um, outside of this one where it's a, a case of mistaken identity. Same time period, England, an aristocrat falls overboard on the ship and the maid takes her place. So when they get to England, she's now lady whatever. And um, But the one I'm really excited about <laughs> that I can't stop thinking about is a historical fantasy series about a World War One nurse who finds a mysterious man on the battlefield, and he's actually from the medieval times somehow. Wow! Yeah. Wow! So we'll see. I don't know if my readers will follow me into something like that, but that's really, really what's exciting me right now. You know, Michelle, <laughs> your readers love you because of your author's oh, voice. Thank you. And I feel that all of those options that you mentioned will be something that they'll hook into because you're telling it to them. Thank you. It's your story. I hope so. I hope so. I hope people will take that leap with me. Oh, I have no <laughs> doubt about that. <laughs> A Spying Eye by Michelle Cox is in bookstores now. This is Josie Brown with Author Provocateur.